scripture for this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Um, So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it, just as Jesus had told them. And when they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, Jesus sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Well, before we jump into that text, let's pray. Father, we we just read a text where your son visited the temple and no one recognized your your visitation. No one recognized the son of God entering the temple. And so, God, I recognize we, we all can come in here, we can read the Bible, we can sing songs about you and miss your visitation. Help us not to. I pray by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a little over a year ago, we had a parade here in Kansas City. You guys remember those parades? Who knows? Uh, The Chiefs had won the Super Bowl for the first time in over 50 years, and the whole city just shut down. Schools were closed. Everyone went downtown to brave the cold Uh, Employers were even like, listen, turn on the TV, keep working, uh, whatever you got to do. But today our whole city uh, just enjoyed the victory of the Chiefs, where the whole team got on on vehicles, rode down uh, the city all the way down to Union Station. My favorite uh, part of that day, I watched most of it at home with my kids, and watching our friend, our elder uh, Mitch Holtis, MC the event when all the players got to Union Station and just watching Mitch's face the whole time. Just like I could just imagine him asking as he handed the mic off to these players, no idea what they're about to say. Like, is this, is today the day I get fired? 
Um, he didn't. He made it. Uh, but it was an incredible moment. But imagine uh, if, if at the end of that, the parade, right, Patrick Mahomes gets up to speak with the mic. And rather than, like, praising his team, the Kansas City, he just goes off. He goes off on Kansas City, how much he hates it, how much he hates the Chiefs, uh, how much he doesn't like Travis Kelsey, Andy Reid, any of them, and just throws the mic down, throws the Super Bowl trophy down, and walks off. If that had happened, we might be in the realm of what Jesus is doing when he walks into the temple, speaks a prophetic rebuke against everything going on in the temple, and then walks away. What is he doing? When he looks at the temple and says, this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den for robbers. What does he mean by that? What's he doing? Uh, Well, I want to walk through these verses, through the three images Jesus gives in this story. There's the house, the cave, and the colt. Not C-U-L-T, C-O-L-T. The house, the cave, and the colt. So first, uh, the house. Um, Now, one thing that's important before we go into what what happens in this story is the Gospel of Luke is really uh, divided up into into three sections. Luke 1 through 3 is the prologue. So that was back the beginning of 2020. That's where we were, uh, Luke 1 through 3. And then uh, Luke 3 through 9 is sort of his teaching, his, his life, his ministry. But it's pretty clear at Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 51, there's a change. And all of the rest of the Gospel of Luke begins to be about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So this is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Uh, Commentators point out this is a clear division point in Luke's Gospel. This is important. And now when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then the rest of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And so now we are here. He has arrived and is walking into Jerusalem. So this is a major moment in the Gospel of Luke, which should make it even more surprising to us that in this major moment, Jesus is not, uh, is not necessarily received, but he actually makes this a moment for a dramatic rebuke in the temple. And, and Luke's account is very sparse of what happens. Luke focuses his entire attention on Jesus quoting two Old Testament passages. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. That's two Old Testament quotes. The first one about the house of God is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. We should immediately ask, why does Jesus quote Isaiah 56, verse 7? And one thing that's important is, is when we tend to quote verses, we tend to quote them and like pull them out of the context and just mean the one little thing. So like Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me, right? We and I saw a coffee mug that takes that quote and it says, I can do all things through verses taken out of context. Um, because actually that doesn't just mean like I can go win a basketball game. Uh, that's actually not what Paul's referring to in Philippians 4. That's how we tend to treat the Bible sometimes. We pull a verse out and make it mean what we want to mean. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Anytime you quote a verse or anytime a verse is quoted in the New Testament, what's meant is, hey, remember the whole context of what I'm quoting. And because a lot of people had large sections of Scripture memorized, they would understand Jesus is not just referring to one line from Isaiah 56. He's referring to the whole context. So what is the whole context of Isaiah 56? Why does Jesus quote this passage? So let me go back and read the two verses around what Jesus is quoting here. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Here's what Isaiah wrote. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, 
everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is a reference to the mountain the temple is on, the mount the temple's on, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be, a, shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So I'm, I, we're not ready quite to, to, to name the entirety of what Jesus means by quoting Isaiah 56. But one thing that's very clear is that Jesus has a heart for all people. And the temple was to be a sign that God's heart was for all people. His house was to be a house, not just of prayer, but a house of prayer for all people. But we're not, re- we're not quite ready to go fully into what Jesus is getting at there because we need the second quote that Jesus gives, which is really the rebuke part of the quote. Um, and so we, the house is Jesus, Isaiah 56. This is to be a house of prayer for all people. So that's point one. But then secondly, Jesus goes to a second image, which is a cave. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of robbers. Um, now, what's important here is, is uh, we need good biblical theology to understand what's happening in this passage. You also need like a good working uh, theology of Ocean's Eleven to understand what Jesus is getting at here, which is uh, it's a movie about thieves, robbers, who rob a casino. And one of the things that uh, is very clear from that movie, and Jesus is, is hinting at here, is that to be a good thief, you need a good hiding place. Right? You, need a, you need to be able to conceal what you're doing so that when the, the robbing is over, you can go and be safe from the consequences of your actions. And so Jeremiah 7 is uh, where Jesus is quoting from. And that's a long passage where God is rebuking the evil of the temple, the people who leave the temple, the city of Jerusalem. And in doing that, he's saying, what you've done with the temple is you've made it into a den of robbers. You've made it into a cave to hide from the consequences of your evil. Which is a pretty profound metaphor. That instead of the temple being a place to meet with God, it's actually become a place to hide from God. The religious establishment has so constructed the temple with religious rituals and their authority to actually make it a place to hide from the presence of God, not to seek the presence of God. And that's what Jesus is saying in this moment in Luke 9, is what should be the house of God and me, the son of God, coming to visit should be welcomed in my own house. Instead, this is the place you hide from God. And now, me, the son of God, walking into your temple is not God showing up to be received in his house, but is instead the authority coming to crash the den of robbers. You've made this a cave to hide from God, and I'm crashing your cave, is what Jesus is saying. Now, this, is, this should not surprise us, because I think we have ample opportunities to look across religious, many different religions, that ultimately turn uh, the religious places or practice not into seeking a real God, but actually seeking what they want, or seeking to hide from God. And listen, in our own, our own church history, we have a plethora of examples where the church became not a place to seek the living God, but a place to hide from him and his purposes and his justice. I actually think we're going to see something like that in the American church <clears throat> right now. This may be a little bit uh, something you guys are, are less aware of, but I've had to throw away a number of books 
in the last four or five years written by pastors who turned out to be in it for the money, abusive leaders, or in gross moral failures deceiving their church. In many cases, the church authorities and eldership concealing and helping them conceal their sin. And I'm going to not just like small names, like I've had to throw away a lot of my library, even this week, a pastor who's been made known for speaking against prosperity preachers himself turns out to own three luxury homes and be making a seven-figure salary when you add up his income. It has not been an encouraging last few years when you look at the structure of American evangelical Christianity and what's behind some of the most prominent names. Where the church becomes not a place to seek the living God, but to hide from him and seek our own and so what I want to do this morning, I want, to, I want to push into that. This is not something to think about how other people might do this, but to think about how we, each of us, might come into this room or come into the church, the community of God, and not actually be seeking God, but be seeking to hide from him. So how do we not do that? And Jesus, I think, is, is actually, he's laying out what they're doing in the temple here. And it provides us a way forward to make sure we don't turn our own church community into a a cave to hide from God. So three practices we need to embrace as Christians to prevent from becoming a cave, from, from this place becoming a cave for robbers. The first thing is that we don't have any windows in here. Like we could really make this a cave. Like this, is, this could really, anyway, three practices. Uh, one, first, is humble prayer. Humble prayer. So one of the ways to understand what Jesus is doing here is remember the Bible is meditation in nature, which means when you, read, when you read a passage, the assumption of the author is you're not going to read the Gospel of Luke one time, and that's it. You're going to go back and read it again. So when Jesus says the temple is to be a house of prayer, we should immediately be asking, when else does Jesus talk about prayer in the temple? In the Gospel of Luke, because he does. And the key passage is in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus gives two parables about prayer. And the second one is about two people who come to the temple to pray. The first person who comes to the temple and pray is a Pharisee, someone who's in the religious establishment. And Jesus says, this is what this man prays. And what, what the man prays actually was what was prayed often. And I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this man's prayer in the message. This is how the Pharisee prays. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man, the other man who comes there, the tax collector. Thank God I'm not like this man. For I fast twice a week and tithe all my income. And the spirit of self-righteousness, thank God I am not like other people. And then Jesus gives a second example, a tax collector, a man known for, uh, for sin, for breaking the commandments. And Jesus says his prayer is this. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus finishes that teaching by saying, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the point Jesus is making is in his temple, the prayer that defines temple practice experience, seeking God, is have mercy on me, a sinner. 
There is no room in the house of God to say, thank God we're not like this. Now here's the thing, none of us pray like that. Because we all know this teaching from Jesus. We know, like, I can't pray. God, thank you, I am not like X person or X teacher. We know not to pray like that. And yet, we have a culture that runs on that sentiment. That's how you gain a following, whether it's you have a political news show or a podcast. You create the group of people you are thankful that you are not like, and then you talk about them ad nauseum about how bad they are and how grateful you are you are not like them. And it may, not, it may never be an explicit sentiment, but it's there. I'm the righteous, and they are the sinner. And this, I've seen this culture foment in the life of this church. It's what drives a lot of churches when they continually rail against other groups of people or other people and everything they get wrong. And we're the ones who get it right. Or it's why in many church cultures, gossip or criticizing people behind their backs is so common. Because that the, the posture of, of ultimately gossiping criticism behind people's backs is to exalt yourself above them and say, thank God I don't do what they do. I would never do what they do. And I need to tell other people that I would never do what they do. And the result becomes the house of God is not a welcome place to broken, sinful people. And Jesus is saying, that's one of the sure signs you've abused my house and made it into a cave to hide from me the moment you begin to feel yourself superior to other people. The prayer of the temple, the prayer of the house of God is have mercy on me, Because one, one of our key callings as a church is to make the gospel credible to the world. That no matter how low you have fallen in life, Jesus' posture towards you is mercy. As Dane Orton says in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness. For renewed pardon. With distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. That is one of the most unbelievable things in our world, that God has an unlimited supply of mercy and grace for sinners. And our job as a community is to make that idea credible. God is a God of limitless mercy and grace. But when we pray or when we speak or when we live in such a way that says, thank God I'm not like those people, we contradict the gospel and we make his church and his, his house a cave to hide from who he is rather than to invite him in. And we all come before him and say, God, have mercy on you, a sinner. So we need to practice humble prayer if we're going to make this, keep this a house of God, not a cave for robbers. And then secondly, we need hospitality for the needy. And so this, this is going back to Isaiah 56, right? The key of Isaiah 56 is that this isn't just to be like a place we pray, but we pray because God has a heart for all peoples to come to his house, to worship him. And this has been a theme throughout the Gospel of Luke, how the religious establishment and many of the people Jesus encountered did not have a heart for the other, other nations, for uh, the other people, for tax collectors, sinners, whoever they were. They did not have a spirit of hospitality. This is the way Jesus' ministry began all the way back in Luke chapter 4. And if you remember that, that sermon much, a very, very long time ago, I don't have time to unpack all of this, so if you want more, go back there. But 
And when Jesus preaches his first sermon, everybody loves it until he gives more information on what he means. And then they try to kill him. And it's a very abrupt, it's a very abrupt change, right? From great sermon to we want to kill you. And the reason why that attitude changes is because once Jesus preaches this sermon, and it's clear to his hometown Nazareth where he's preaching this sermon in Luke 4, that they have an inside track to the Messiah. Right? Like the Messiah's from our town. This means we're like we have a special in. We get special access. And Jesus, when they begin to say this, says, No, you don't. And then he goes on to he gives two Old Testament stories where the salvation of God does not go to Israel, but goes to the widow of Seraphis, goes to Naaman the Syrian. It goes outside of Israel. And he basically, what he's saying to them is, you don't have a special inside track for me. My salvation is also for the nations. And they hate it. And they try to kill him in Luke 4. Now, I can't do justice to the whole story, but that, that's what happens. And throughout, the gospel, throughout Luke's gospel, as Jesus makes his salvation available to people, that the religious establishment did not want him to make it available to, they, that angered them. It frustrated them. It offended them. And it's one of the reasons why he will end up on a cross. And so here in the temple, instead of the temple embodying Isaiah 56, which is that anyone who would seek the Lord could come and be welcomed, could come and taste the hospitality of a God who desires them to come and know him. Instead of that, the temple was a closed system where the bad people were kept out, the people we didn't want were kept out. And Jesus is why he comes and says, my house of prayer should be a house of prayer to the nations, but you've made it a cave to hide from me what I want, what I desire for you. So that, that's, listen, that's why we started where Kathy and I started today is, is does, does coming into this place make you have a burden for people who don't know the name of Jesus to come into this house tonight? People from other parts of the world, people from our own community that don't look or resemble us. Do you have a burden for them to come into the house of the Lord? If the answer is no, it's because this is a cave to hide from God, not his house to seek him in prayer. So we need humble prayer. We need hospitality for the nations. And then thirdly and finally, we need, we need to pursue the presence of God. Like the reason all of us in, should be in here right now, or should, the reason we're a part of a community of Christians, is we want the presence of God. Whatever he has to say, we want that. In uh, 19, uh, the 1960s, there was a sociologist named Philip Reeves who wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in that, he has a really helpful kind of one-sentence summary of what he saw as a major shift happening in, this cult, in the culture of the West, and in particular the U.S., at this time, and here's the sentence he used to define that. He said, the past, religious man, is, is how he defined kind of humanity in the America pre-1960s. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man, what he saw happening, is born to be pleased. He's saying our culture was moving from a culture of desiring salvation from God to desiring to be pleased. I don't know what he's talking about. Right? It's like, I mean, look at our, our culture today, like whether it's a Netflix queue, a smartphone trained to give us dopamine and praise, whether it's endless entertainment available, which, to be honest, that's the way primarily people view church experience as well. And not like, I'm not saying like in a bad way necessarily, it's not all bad, but ultimately it's like, well, did I like the music? How was the teaching? Did I like the people? Was it, was, was it a pleasant experience? 
And that's, listen, to some extent, that is fair, right? We should be hospitable. It's supposed to be a welcoming place. All of that's fair game. But when the, when the primary vision for our life becomes, does this please me? It makes an encounter with God very difficult. Because while God's desire for you is deep-seated joy, I think that's very different than what Philip Reeve talks about. Is our purpose, which is our desire to be pleased. And it becomes very difficult, I think, in, in our own context for the church to be a place for God to challenge us, to confront us, to, to not coddle us in our desire to be pleased, but actually to challenge our hearts into his will. I, uh, I started preaching regularly on Sunday mornings when I was about 25. So I've been at it, you know, 12, 13 years now. And by now I know there are a few topics that if we address, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's just a moment to address as a broader church, there are a few topics I know will, will generate response and frustration. Um, and so a while back, I, I, I had a sermon coming. I knew, I expected that. And sure enough, the next day I got a phone call. And the phone call was, hey, listen, you said things yesterday. And you just need to know if you keep saying things like that, people are going to leave the church. So don't say things like that. I was like, okay, well, so I went back to the passage. It's like, okay, here's, you know, this is the passage. This is why I said what I said. This is what I was thinking through. Do you feel like I missed anything in the passage? Did I misrepresent what God was saying, what Jesus was saying in that passage? And he just went, he said the same thing over there. Listen, you said, you said some things. People, I didn't like it. People didn't like it. People are going to leave the church. It's the same old thing. It's like, okay, okay. So then I, I did kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, here's the passage. This is what I think the passage is saying. Do I think I misrepresented that? And then he said the same thing. Again, after about 30 minutes of this, I realized, I don't think you care what God said. And you don't want to be confronted by what God said. And I think this phone call is probably, I didn't say that. That was what was in my mind. Um, but I think, I think we're probably done talking at this point because there's no interest in God bursting into the cave and saying, uh, we have some things to talk about. And I'll, I'll, listen, my guess is every one of us in this room is like, yeah, like, yeah, do it, until it's the thing that you built your cave for. And the idea of the temple is that what is pursued in that house is not, not my pleasure, not my happiness, not even my joy, not even uh, what I want, my outcomes of life. I come to temple, I come into the house of God for God pursue him, his agenda, his kingdom, his values, and I'm laid bare, and whatever he has to say goes. And to be clear, I see that as a communal endeavor, right? That's not, even though I'm, I'm the one sinner who's been tasked to come up and kind of say, this is what I think God is saying from his word, um, even though that's my role in the community, it doesn't mean that my word is ever final, so that's, that's not my, my spirit. But what, ha- what I have noticed through 13 years of teaching is there are some things where people clearly have built a cave and they're hiding from the word of God. And this is not limited to a few bad, this is not, this is, listen, go back to humble prayer. I'm not saying, hey, there are people out there that do that. Thank God we're not like those people. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we do that. All of us do that. And why this community has to be a place where those things can be confronted in you is so important is because Jesus gets this, I mean, just the profoundness of this moment should shake us. The Son of God goes to the temple, the house of God, and they do not recognize his dignity. That should terrify us. That we would do the same. 
there's Jesus walking in through these doors. We say, yeah, we're good. Walk up. So how do you build a case to hide from God? Or do you want his presence? So that's uh, the house. That is the cave. Finally, uh, the cult. So we begin uh, Luke 19, you know, this, this story with Jesus insisting on riding a particular type of animal, which should seem strange to us. He's like, it, it, I, listen, I already set it up. There's, there's a, a donkey and it's a young donkey and I'm going to ride that one. And the disciples are like, okay. He's like, and I've already, someone's going to ask you, why are you taking this donkey? I already talked to them. I'm riding that donkey. And it's like, okay, Jesus, we get it, right? He's very, why is he doing that? And, and listen, the reason he's doing that is very clear. Jesus is, is calling to mind a prophecy from Zechariah. That by riding this animal, Jesus is, is openly declaring himself as Messiah. Zechariah 9, this is where this is coming from. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So not even that Jesus insists on riding a donkey, which is a strange animal to be entering to as a king, but a young donkey. So why? This seems very strange, right? Well, keep in mind, there's, if he's the Messiah, there's a couple of things he's claiming. One is that his authority and kingship is greater than that of Rome, who is the oppressive ruler over Jerusalem. And the hope of all of Israel was that Jesus would overthrow Rome, kick them out, and set up the reign of God from the Temple Mount. And one has to begin to wonder, how is a man riding a baby donkey going to overthrow the world power of Rome? But more than that, Jesus is going uh, to make his claim rightfully, not just as a political authority as Messiah, but also as, as the religious authority in Jerusalem over the temple. So why, why ride in on a young donkey? And this is this gets right at the height, height of the irony of who Jesus is as Messiah. Is that he makes this outrageous claim. I'm the king. I'm the king come to bring salvation. And if you were to roll, if, you, if we were to read verse 10 of Zechariah 9, this is what we read about the Messiah's reign. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, he's saying, I am the king of the world. And yet he rides in on a baby donkey. Why? And the means by which he will accomplish his rule is not really known to us. Because even though the religious establishment had built a cave to hide from him, and he could have gone in and blown that cave up, blown in and been like, you guys are out, I'm judging you, you're dead, right? I I'm reigning now and you all abandon me. He could have done that to Rome, right? He could have gone up to Pilate and said, actually, I have a thousand angels. I'm going to mount a stallion and I'm riding in with them and we're taking you all out. Like that's, he could have done that, but he doesn't do that. He comes and he makes, he makes the clear claim, I am the Messiah. So Rome, temple establishment, what do you want to do? You can crown me. As my rightful claim to messiahship would demand. Or you can kill me. Because I'm not going to fight back. I come in peace. And you can give me my throne or you can kill me. 
course, we know the vote was unanimous. It was six. The religious establishment, the temple authority, that's what they wanted. The Roman authority, that's what they wanted. And even his own disciples fled him when the moment came to defend him in his claim of Messiah. Jesus offered the choice, crown me as Herman, and we, we voted for him. And yet it was through that very act that Jesus offers us his grace and he receives his limitless kindness. This is why our community is not founded on, we're better than everybody else, and thank God we're not like those people, but why we are founded on have mercy on me, a sinner, is because the fundamental act of Jesus, his fundamental work as Messiah, is to lay down his life for us. He mounts his little baby donkey, he rides to our cave, where we hide from him, and he invites us back into life with him, exchanges his own life for ours. And so I would invite you this morning to meditate on this question. Where, where are you this morning? Hiding in a cave, estranged from the peace of God, worn out. Where, where are you? Because the posture of the king of the universe, the Messiah, is not to come and, and, and have a spirit of condemnation towards you. Is not to ride into the temple, tell everybody off, and then kill them, right? No, that's not what he does. What he does he rides, into the, he rides into Jerusalem. He offers the choice, crown me or kill me. And then the very act of us killing him was the means by which we killed him. Giving him his crown, making him king, not because he is an authoritative Messiah who runs over who's ever in front of him, but he is a kind, merciful Messiah who went into death itself and comes out with limitless supply of mercy and grace. So wherever you are this morning, Jesus is pursuing you. He's riding on his little, his little baby donkey towards you in mercy and kindness, inviting you to crown him in your life, inviting you to pray is the only response that's needed to take up life with Jesus. If you just have mercy on me, Father, we come as as sinners before you, as people who uh, do not stand in judgment or in superiority to others, but God, who who stand as people in need of, of the mercy of God. Because of the own ways, we don't pray humbly, we don't pursue hospitality for others, but we don't pursue you in the ways that we we need. So God, we just invite this space now. We all we build our own caves to hide from you to build uh, identities and values and priorities, God, that are not in line with your own. And we, we want those things so badly. And yet we pray, would you ride in? And would you let us hear your rebuke this morning, your invitation into life with you, that this is to be a house of prayer for all people. Start that with us, we pray all this in Jesus' name.